is from the Gospel of John. It's John chapter 20. Oops. And you'll find that on page 1087 in those church Bibles, which should be under the seat in front of you. So I'll just give you a moment to find that, that in the Bible. It's John chapter 20, and we're reading from verse 1 through to verse 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. coming through loud and clear there we go um as as bell mentioned a little earlier on we um as part of this series we've been hearing stories of grace from uh amongst our people here at St. Matt's. um and this morning we've got uh our sister jessica van loon sharing her story if you were at the women's retreat this year she shared uh this story a little fuller um but she comes to night church, and it's just a warning. It's a powerful story. Um, but enjoy what she shares, uh, and then we'll kick off. 
uh, in the Word. I now know what His grace is like. You know, it's undeserved. We don't deserve it. I, my name's Jessica and I've been at St Matt's for 22 years. Um, and in 2017, in November 2017, the worst thing happened to me. My husband said to me, out of the blue, my love tank for you is empty. And um, the floor fell from beneath me and I was in a terrible sea of grief. My family and I, my children, three children and I um, had to cope with that and one and a half months later he left to fly overseas and we discovered uh, six months later that on arriving in Belgium he'd gone to live uh, with his girlfriend and so he had left me for another woman and I was broken. I call it my winter, uh, the period of time that happened after that. It was two and a half years of grief and great sorrow. I grieved for my husband. I had hoped that he would return and I prayed for that. I asked the Lord, um, please bring him back, restore our marriage. But um, he did not return and it was two and a half years later that um, I came to that point of realisation. And right in the middle of my, uh, what I call my winter, a friend of mine um, who lives in Germany, I was there visiting Laura, she said to me, I have a word for you, and she said, you're on the ice and it's cracked and it's time to get off the ice, was a word from the Lord. And she had a bit more to tell me afterwards but thought she'd just wait a week to tell me. And she said, um, just sit with that. So I did and I, I sunk into the word and I, I thought, God, okay, I'll, I hear you, you've got to help me. And then a week later she said, You've got to get off the ice because spring is coming. And um, ice melts in spring, so you can't stay on the ice or you'll fall through. And um, I took that as a, an encouragement and a word from the Lord that it was time to move out of this terrible sadness. And um, so I did. It was a year later that my springtime arrived and um, I landed so gently on solid ground that I didn't realise I'd hit it until I realised my tears had stopped. I'd actually cried for two years at that point, but the tears for Mike had stopped and then I knew, oh, this must be the spring that God had promised me. And then there were many really good things, uh, blessings that happened after that. Uh, my children got engaged, Tasman to M, Jonah to Jess, and my daughter Laura returned from Europe. It was just blessing after blessing after blessing and I knew without a shadow of a doubt that I was in springtime. I'd moved into that space. Mike is not here in Australia, he's living in Belgium, so it was easy to sort of disassociate him from my family somehow, my children and I, as we experienced all these joys. But on his arriving in Sydney in April this year, I was confronted with the fact that forgiveness was something that I had to do, and I didn't want to do it. And um, I told my family, yes, you can see Mike, but I won't. Um, you do your family thing, but I'm going to be staying out of that scene. But God had other plans. 
I sort of made it clear my plans, but God's plans were different. He started to massage my heart. It's the best way I can describe it. I'd read scripture, the word, and everything about forgiveness would just jump off the page and hit me. And it was like, okay, God, I hear you, but he doesn't deserve it. He doesn't deserve my forgiveness. And um, But after three wrestling sessions with God, I got to the point of surrender. And I decided that I would forgive Mike. I decided it on a Tuesday and on the Wednesday I forgave him for adultery. God's got a great sense of humour because I thought that I would forgive Mike on a neutral territory on grass by the sea with a takeaway coffee. You know, it would be something that I could do um, on neutral territory. But it was pouring with rain, cats and dogs, and so I had to bring him to my home because a cafe felt too public. And we sat down and I had written my words of forgiveness because I thought, you know what, I could falter here. Um, so I wrote it in a card and I read it to him and I gave it to him and he cried and um, then I bubbled on some more because the joy of the Lord as it turns out was my strength I was able to talk about my blessings in my life and um, he left and then Laura and I sat down and I said what now and the word lavish just dropped into my head God just put that word in my head and I went yeah this forgiveness of God that he gives us forgiveness is lavish so I said, right, we'll lavish dinner. That's what we'll do. And um, I ended up setting a table for a lavish family dinner that night and we surrounded him with family love. And it's a miracle because I did none of this in my own strength at all. It's a God thing because um, I had wrestled, I had resisted doing it and yet God helped me. Joy of the Lord bubbled up. I was able to do it and then he showed me how to do it. So God's grace um, is just incredible and we get it every day. And I think um, I now have a very deep understanding of what that is because I had not wanted to forgive Mike. I didn't know how to do it. He didn't deserve it. And yet God showed me, he also gave me that verse, you know, my yoke is easy, um, my burden is light. And um, so I stepped out in obedience to Christ in forgiving Mike. And um, I now know what his grace is like. You know, it's undeserved. We don't deserve it. And um, now Mike didn't deserve it, but he's got it. He said he felt free afterwards, which was wonderful. And I reflect on that because that's how I feel with my God under his grace. powerful forgiveness. <laughs> uh, Jess is going to be here tonight, but I just wanted to thank her for her willingness to share that story of grace with us. Couldn't have been easy, but what a blessing and a testimony to God's work. Um, we've got another story of grace to reflect on now. Um, before we do that, let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for its power to change our lives. We thank you for the way that your grace was at work uh, in Jess's life and the encouragement that it is to us today to, to, have, to have heard that. We thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for this beautiful company and the pleasure it is of gathering together as your people. And we thank you, Lord, for your word that we're going to reflect on together now. May our hearts be filled with gratitude at all the ways in which you bless us. Amen. Amen. Last year, the name uh, Mary was ranked 208th in the list of most popular girls' names. 208th. And that was actually down 37 places from the previous two years. Tough break. Now, it's a far cry from 2,000 years ago in first century Palestine, where it seems everyone was calling their daughters Mary. There are a lot of Marys in the New Testament. I don't know if you've ever noticed that before. But you've got Jesus' mum, the most famous Mary of all. Then there's Mary, the sister of Martha, brother to Lazarus. There's Mary, the mother of Mark, who gets a single mention in Acts chapter 12. There's Mary Magdalene, of course. And then there's the other Mary. The other Mary. That's actually what Matthew calls her. <laughs> there were so many Marys getting around, one of them had to be called the other Mary. <laughs> so there's five different Marys by my count. Today we're just going to be looking at one of them, Mary Magdalene. The question is, who, who was she? Who was this woman? That's a question that's uh, fascinated people for millennia, even from the early days of the church. The Catholic Church actually refers to her as the Apostle of the Apostles which is an interesting term, and it's a nod to her being the one who got to share the news of Jesus' resurrection with the rest of the disciples. Then there's a Pope in the 6th century who was the first to, to link her, to link Mary with, with the sinful woman who anoints Jesus' feet, if you remember that story. So ever since the 6th century, it's been assumed that, that she must have been a prostitute, which scholars think is actually pretty unlikely that she's the same woman. She also plays a central role in what's known as the Gnostic Gospels. You might have heard that term used before, but these were a collection of, of late heretical writings um, which contain all sorts of myths about Jesus that end up contradicting the four Gospels that we have. But among the Gnostic Gospels, there's actually a Gospel of Mary um, which positions her as, as the most beloved and trusted of all of Jesus' disciples which I think you've got threads that, that follow through to then Dan Brown and The Da Vinci Code, which you might have heard of before, uh, and the movie by the same name. Spoiler alert if you haven't read it or seen it, um, but it makes the, the salacious claim that Mary was in fact the wife of Jesus, that they secretly had children together who ended up somehow in the south of France and, and even had ties to the French royal family. So there's that. Now, I didn't realise it, but there's even a movie about her that came out a couple of years ago, um, which kept this, boast, boasts no less than three Academy Award nominees, including the Joker himself, Joaquin Phoenix, playing Jesus. Oh, and I saw that poster this week. I thought it was a joke. It's actually a real movie. I don't think it's very good from the reviews that I found. Who is Mary Magdalene? Well, rather than listening to Hollywood, 
what's the New York Times bestseller, Dan Brown, we're going to take our lead on this woman from the Bible. Surprise. Her story of grace paints for us a picture of discipleship. She offers us an image of, of what following Jesus looks like. And it comes to us in, le- in at least three distinct ways. In Mary, we see a disciple of Jesus who was changed by his life, who was disappointed by his death, and who was honoured by his resurrection. Changed, disappointed, honoured. That's where we're heading. Now, contrary to what some might like to claim, in truth, we actually, we, there's not a whole lot we know about this woman. Out of the five Marys that are mentioned in the New Testament, she's the only one that gets the last name, which is something, Magdalene, although it's actually not, a, not technically a surname, it literally means of Magdala, which was a place, uh, a place that, that was, a, was a small fishing village located on the, the Sea of Galilee, uh, and that's what it looks like today. They've found the ruins. You can visit them and, and check it out. Now, it's interesting. Jesus is not recorded as having visited Magdala, uh, but it's likely he must have because Mary becomes one of his disciples in what must have been pretty dramatic circumstances. Now, the first mention we hear of her is, is Luke chapter 8. Uh, he tells us that the 12 were with Jesus uh, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, possessed by seven evil spirits, until she met Jesus. <laughs> like, what a profound change that must have been. Back then, demonic possession, it was, it was really a one-way ticket to the margins of society. You were considered unclean, and a danger to those around you, it would have been a, a fairly chaotic and unpredictable life. And we don't know how long she was afflicted with this, we don't know what caused it, but we never hear any mention of a husband, any mention of children, so it's likely that she, she had had this condition for a while. Now that, that one line in Luke's Gospel is actually all we get to hear about her background. We're not even told what, what the encounter with Jesus was like. But you can imagine, if she'd been suffering for a long time, she would likely have had quite a long list of things that she wanted to do if she was ever free of her condition. You can see there, though, at the end of the passage on the screen, she ends up throwing her lot in with the one who had freed her. She joins the movement, in other words, throws her support behind him. And when you think about it, that's about as dramatic a change as it gets, right? From demon-possessed to disciple of Jesus. I talk about a 180. You see, Mary had been touched by Jesus' grace. Her life had been changed by his. Which, actually, when you think about it, is what happens... With every disciple, right? That's every disciple's story, isn't it? Likely not as dramatic as as an exorcism, but those who are here today, who are disciples of Jesus, we all have change moments throughout our own stories, don't we? Moments of clarity, 
moments of conviction, moments that, that make our hearts soar in praise, moments that, that bring us to our knees in prayer, like flags that are planted along the, the walk of our faith. Each one of them testifies to the power of God's grace at work within us. I wonder what your moments look like. When have you felt particularly shaped by God's grace? One of the biggest moments in my story, <coughs> excuse me, was my first ever summer camp at the start of high school. I'd uh, been raised in the Christian faith, but I remember that camp really being the first time uh, that, I, that I came to grasp the idea that my life wasn't my own, yeah? that it had been bought by the blood of God's Son. And it was, it was really the first time I realised that I wasn't my own, I was actually His. And that meant that my whole life actually had to be about Him, not me. It was, it was a complete light bulb moment for me, and uh, it's actually been shaping me ever since. It's one of the, one of the reasons I'm, I'm in ministry now, in fact. Summer Camp 99. <laughs> that was one of my moments. I wonder what yours look like. It occurs to me, though, that it's, it's also entirely possible there are going to be people here across today who call themselves Christians, but who perhaps aren't actually disciples of Jesus yet. You see, to be a disciple is, is to follow another. You follow another, to do as they do, to, to trust and to listen to and to, to, to follow what they teach. Right? It, it's, it's to be changed by them. See... That's what God's grace does within us, isn't it? It, it changes us, it, it draws us in, it, it, it reorients our hearts and it, and it begins to change what we love, changes what we, what we long for, what we live for, how we live. Is, is, that, is that what's happened for you? And there may be people here today who claim to be a follower of Jesus and yet really the only person they're actually following is themselves. There hasn't been any real change moments in your story, so your life doesn't really look like Jesus at all. It, it kind of just still looks like the world. Now, if that is you, or if you suspect that it might be, the good news is that it's not too late. It's not too late. In fact, God might, might even be using Mary's story today to start your own story of grace. Wouldn't that be something? Maybe today becomes the first real moment of change for you. Luke offers us uh, just a hint of Mary's background, but it's not much. It's not much. There's nothing else about her in any of the Gospels until the moment of Jesus' death, the end of the Gospels, really. When Jesus uh, is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and then crucified, uh, the next day, Mark's Gospel tells us that everyone, everyone deserted him and fled. And that's the way it stays, from the garden to the Sanhedrin when he's tried, to Pilate's place and to the cross. Apart from Peter's denial of Jesus, we hear nothing of, of the rest of Jesus' close disciples. And it's the same at his death, which is pretty incredible when you think about it, right? At the hour of his greatest need, in the throes of his greatest anguish, there's only one of the 12 disciples that is said to have been there. 
The rest of them are nowhere to be seen. But Mary is there. Mary's there. And in fact, all four Gospels make it clear that she was there as Jesus died. I don't know if you've ever seen The Passion of the Christ. I'm assuming some of you have. Those of you who have will know it's not an easy watch, is it? I I remember seeing it at the cinema where it came out. Never seen it again. Once was enough. In fact, once was too much for me. Imagine for a second, though, actually being there as it happened. (laughs) Having to watch it. Having to hear it. Having to feel it happening to someone that you love so deeply. His pain, his shame, his isolation. That's just that feeling of helplessness. And all of this happening to the one that you owed your life to. I, I, I really can't blame Jesus' disciples for not being there in those moments because I wouldn't have wanted to be there. But Mary was there. Can't have been an easy watch. And yet she couldn't abandon the one who hadn't abandoned her. The one who was responsible for bringing her back to life. So she wasn't going anywhere. And she's not just there as he's dying. Matthew and Mark both tell us that she was there at Jesus' burial as well. Just think about what that means for a moment. It means that Mary must have been at Golgotha all day, waiting, watching all day, even as the sun was finally setting and they were pulling Jesus' body off the cross. She still couldn't leave. To be a disciple is to follow another. Mary follows him all the way to the tomb. She couldn't leave. And even two days later, as soon as Sabbath's over, before the sun was even up, she's right back to that tomb. I think she returns on that Sunday morning because she had nowhere else to go. She'd given up everything to follow him. She was there next morning... Because for her, there was no what's next. Of course she went to the tomb. Where else would she be? Friends, that's the kind of discipleship I want to have. That's the kind of discipleship I'm praying for my boys to grow into. Right? Where there is no what's next. Not even when life takes a rocky turn. Not even in those seasons of winter. When the darkness falls, it's impossible to work out what God might be doing. Because the truth is, there's, there's, there's nowhere else to turn except to him. To cling tighter, to lean in closer, to call out louder. You know, Mary doesn't visit that tomb that morning expecting or even hoping that Jesus is going to be alive. She is in the dark on what God is doing. And yet she goes anyway. Because for her, there is no what's next. That's the kind of stuff I hope and pray my discipleship is made out of. What about you? You see, what I think makes makes it even more incredible is when you consider just how disappointed she must have been. Disappointed by him. 
disappointed by his death. I mean, what must have been going through her head as she spent the better part of an entire day watching her saviour die? The same man who had the power to, to stop storms with a word and to banish demonic spirits. The one whom you'd rested all of your hopes upon, the one whom you'd left everything for. What's going through your head? I mean, as, as Jesus' enemies were there watching on as well, taunting him, you remember what they said? He saved others, but he can't save himself. I reckon Mary would have been standing, watching from a distance, whispering almost the very same thing under her breath. Do it, Jesus. Do it. Why aren't you doing anything? Why are you letting them do this to you? None of it would have made any sense. And then as the stone was rolled into place, sealing the tomb, like what questions would have come then? There'd been no miracle. There'd been no miraculous escape. Jesus was now truly dead and buried, right? It was over. What, is, what does that mean? Was he a fraud? Had he been lying? What did that mean for her? And you can imagine the, the, some of the other disciples perhaps trying to talk some sense into her. It's like, Mary, it's done. It's over. He's gone. This is pointless. Why are you going back to the tomb? Go back to bed. We all need to move on. We were wrong. Without a doubt, this would have been the most disappointing moment in Mary's life. No question. And yet through it all, Mary is still there, isn't she? As the nails went in, she's still there. As, as he cried out to his father and then breathed his last, she's still there. As they prepared his body and sealed it in a tomb, she's still there. And then even two days later, early Sunday morning, she's still there. Friends, Mary offers us an extraordinary picture of discipleship in the darkness. She chooses to draw near despite her disappointment, despite the confusion and the doubt and the danger. She stays. And at one level, it isn't much. At another level, though, it really is. Because the truth is, all, dis all disciples of Jesus, we, we face times of darkness and disappointment, don't we? Like seasons where, where God does something and, it, and, it, and it's different to what you were hoping or expecting or, or praying that he would do. And it's, what does discipleship look like in those times of deep disappointment? Well, Mary is one example. She's one example. Another is the story of our sister Jess that we heard before, going through her winter, as she calls it. A powerful testimony it was to the, to the way God's grace is at work even in those times of darkness and disappointment, bringing her to a place where could, she, she could see forgiveness in, a, in, a, in a, a far glorious light, far more glorious light than she ever had before. I actually wanted to share a part of that interview that, I, that didn't get to make the final cut. At one point she says this, winter was very hard. But I actually grew in my faith at that point. I was absolutely dependent on the Lord for every breath. I was sinking into the word morning, noon, and night. The best times of worship 
We're at the bottom of the valley. Friends, like Mary, that's a picture of discipleship in the darkness. Deciding to draw near to God even when he has disappointed you. You might be in a moment like that yourself right now in your own winter. And maybe disappointed with God is an absolute understatement. Maybe you've you know, lost relationships long before you were expecting to. Maybe you've been asking for relief at work and it's not been coming. Maybe you're after a new job and that still hasn't happened. Maybe it's a relationship you've been looking for that you haven't found. Maybe it's the body or the mind that God has given you that's been disappointing in some way. Why aren't things working like they should? Why hasn't God done something about it? What is he doing? Friends, every disciple here could say yes to one of those questions. And if not now, then at, then at one time or another in your life. If not those specific questions, then you'll have your own questions, of course. Because times of darkness and disappointment are a feature of life in this broken world. And we worship a God who is bigger than our understanding, who sees everything, every angle, not, not just what's right in front of me. And so the answers that we're after, they're, they're not always easy to come by. And I'm sure that's exactly what the disciples were grappling with in those dark days following Jesus' death. But despite her disappointment, Mary stays. For us, sometimes the darkness will last weeks or even years. Sometimes the winter goes for decades. Mary's darkness was just three days. As we read early on that Sunday morning, as she comes to continue preparing Jesus' body, Instead of a sealed tomb, she finds an empty one. And instead of a dead body, she comes face to face with her risen Lord. That's an incredible account we get in John's Gospel, isn't it? An incredible account. It's not until, I love this part, it's not until he calls her by her name. She hears his voice and he finally comes into focus. It's him. It's him. He's back. She'd ventured to the tomb that morning in order to honour Jesus, and yet instead he is the one who ends up honouring her. I love that. She's the first person in history to receive the good news. Jesus lives. He has risen in victory. Death has been defeated. She gets to be the first to find out. Jesus gives her that honour, the apostle to the apostles. She then gets to go and proclaim to them the good news. But I wonder if you've ever stopped to ponder just how strange it is that she's the first. How weird that is. I've got a friend who, um, who I grew up with. You could legitimately call her an Instagram influencer, if you know what that is. She has amassed close to 100,000 followers on Instagram. It's a fair chunk. Uh, and companies know how much power there is in that kind of influence. And so she's actually had offers of up to $1,000 for a single post if she'll talk about a particular product. Right? Isn't that incredible? See, 
these brands, it's just, it's just another way to advertise, right? Of having their product endorsed to as many people as possible and they're willing to pay for it. But man, looking at who Jesus appears to first, it's like he's skipped marketing 101. It's like, what are you doing? Out of all the people he chooses to appear to first, you choose Mary Magdalene? She is not who you would choose if you were trying to influence as many people as quickly as possible. She's just not. Like if it was up to me, I would have dropped Jesus right there in the middle of a session of the Sanhedrin. Imagine the retweets. Guess what? I'm back. Or, or have him appear in the temple before Caiaphas, the high priest. You know, like I told you I would rebuild it in three days. That'd be a great line. Or in the middle of a, a synagogue full of Pharisees. Or even a dinner party at Pilate's place. Like, there are so many good options to choose from. Or even Peter, right? The one who, who had denied Jesus three times. Not even he gets to see Jesus first. It's Mary Magdalene. And she's a virtual nobody. She barely rates a mention in the Gospels. No status, no power, no influence. As a woman at that time, her testimony was inadmissible in a court of law. Add to that the fact that, that she had previously been in possession of seven demonic spirits. Not a great reputation for your first eyewitness to have, right? Couldn't have done wonders for her credibility. On your list of influences, Mary's got to be somewhere down the bottom. And yet Jesus chose her to be first. Because of course he does. Of course he does. The one who had followed him all the way to the tomb. The one who had been there every step of the way to see him die, to see where he was buried, and to see him risen. So many more important people he could have appeared to important in the world's eyes and yet what does Paul say at the start of 1 Corinthians but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise he chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are appearing to Mary first is such a beautiful demonstration of God's upside down kingdom isn't it and friends, we worship a crucified Savior. Those two words don't belong together. But that is the good news. The message of the cross is foolishness to our world. To shame the wise, to shame the strong, to shame the influential. Why? Why does God do it like that? Well, because then it has to be Him, doesn't it? It's got to be His wisdom. It's got to be His strength, not ours. I mean, that's grace as well, isn't it? And because it's His grace at work, then the glory is His alone. Lastly, you know, Mary is also a reminder that God's story of grace always ends with resurrection. Always. Mary's story ends with Jesus' resurrection. Amazing. But our story of grace ultimately ends with our own resurrection, doesn't it? And how important is it for us to remember that, especially in those seasons of darkness and disappointment? Jesus rising on that first Easter Sunday actually makes the promise to every disciple who follows him, God's story always ends 
with resurrection. If not in this life, then in the one to come. Friends, we started this story of grace by asking the question, who is Mary Magdalene? Turns out the better question actually is, what kind of disciple was she? What kind of disciple was she? Fiercely loyal, quietly courageous, with no what's next. Discipleship despite the disappointment. I wonder, how has God been using her story to shape your own? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the way you use small things like Mary's testimony, a woman that barely rates to mention in your word and yet is there at your son's death, at his burial, at his resurrection and who stands before us today as such a beautiful example of what it, what it looks like to be a disciple, someone that follows you with her quiet courage, with her unwillingness to leave, even in the depth of her disappointment. Lord God, we pray. Pray that by your grace you might work within us, particularly those here today who feel like they're in those seasons of winter and disappointment for whatever reason, that they may take hope in Mary's example and also in the reminder that your story of grace always ends with resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray.